Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music, and as important as Riza is to this podcast, there's one person who's more important, that's my buddy Grace Weinstein. Grace, it's great to see you again. Here's the thing, we've got this podcast, it's a two-parter this week, Grace, we've got a two-parter. This week is a very big week in American politics, we're starting... The series of hearings that the 1-6 committee are going to put on national television on Thursday night in prime time in honor of that to preview the 1-6 committee hearings. We have a special guest on the podcast, someone who is an important player, and he's a little bit of a get for this podcast, but I'm guessing you might not even know who he is. Does the name Denver Riggleman mean anything to you? Sounds like a a RuPaul Drag Race star. So uh, no, I'm familiar all around, but I'm excited to find out. I don't believe that Denver Riggleman has ever been on RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, although I I probably should have asked that question. No, Denver Riggleman is a Republican. He was a a longtime military intelligence officer who eventually ran for Congress in Virginia, won a congressional seat in Virginia in 2018, and then was defeated two years later in a Republican primary over a whole bunch of very incendiary issues. Denver then went on to become the key Republican staffer on the 1-6 committee. So working for Adam Kinzinger, working for Liz Cheney, doing a lot of technical analysis, meaning he was a deep data guy. And he left the committee about a month ago and now is here on this special two-part edition of Hell and High Water talking uh, about what the committee learned in the course of the time that he was there, uh, nearly a year that he worked for them, and talking about what we should expect to see in these hearings going forward. What are you, as a consumer of political media and as a citizen, what are you hoping to, that these uh, hearings will achieve? I'm hoping to refresh the memory of the American public at large. We step back from the news every day and go, wow, this world has gone to shit because of gun violence. This world has gone to shit because of climate change. So I really hope that this kind of reawakens the American consciousness to a level of awareness that our democracy is in danger and something must be done about it. We're going to hear a lot, I think, this month about Mark Meadows and his role and Steve Bannon and his role, the Trump acolytes who helped to do this, Ginny Thomas and and what her role really was, all that stuff's going to come out. But for a lot of Americans, I think the biggest question always just comes back to (laughs) Donald Trump and his culpability. One of the large questions in our politics right now, is the Department of Justice going to charge Donald Trump with a crime? And I asked Denver Riggleman about that. He was like the first person to read a lot of those Mark Meadows text exchanges, like the ones with Ginny Thomas, and he knows this data better than anyone. I asked him whether he thought that in the course of these hearings, you would get a clear sense of Donald Trump's criminal culpability. This is what he had to say. The hardest thing to prove is command and control for President Trump. That is going to be very difficult. What I don't think is hard to prove is that he had that intent or he had an intent to do that. And that's why when I talk about, I don't know if this is going to go criminal. I'm not sure of that. It might not. But what I think is for people who pay attention, here's my hope for the committee, for people who pay attention, they should be able to see like, hey, maybe this individual wasn't pulling all the strings at every level because it's impossible. Maybe he doesn't have the capacity. Maybe he does and didn't, whatever, is that he wanted it to happen. And I think that's the thing the American people need to look at. Was that his intent? Was that the commander's intent of the people underneath of him? Did they go rogue? I would think that'd be ridiculous to even assume that based on the meetings he had with individuals in the White House. All that stuff's coming out, John. So, Grace, are you still obsessed with Donald Trump? I I think of Donald Trump every year on Memorial Day because of his Hall of Fame tweet, Happy Memorial Day to all of the haters and losers, of which there are many. That is an annual holiday I celebrate as one of the funniest (laughs) tweets of all time. And then I try to spend the rest of the year forgetting that person exists. There's a great quote that's, I don't care what you think about me. I don't think about you at all. I think that it would be great to adopt that mentality when it comes towards uh, Donald Trump as well. I will say, as we've thrown to the podcast and get going here with Denver Riggleman, the reason why this thing is two parts long is because Denver's excellent. When he quit the committee a month ago, he quit and then went dark for a while. And then last week, he emerged and did a couple of appearances on CNN. And some people on the committee were really upset because no staffer or former staffer from this committee has spoken out. So the fact is that other than those two CNN appearances last week, this is the first time that Denver Riggleman has spoken out. So it's a little bit of a get for the podcast to have him on to preview the 1-6 committee hearings. It's also the case that, as I indicated earlier, Denver Riggleman's brief political career is kind of incredible. He was really one of the first people to be targeted by QAnon and gave the only speech that's ever been given by a Republican congressman on the House floor denouncing QAnon and saying, you know, these people are fucking crazy and they're going to take over the Republican Party. He's just got a lot to say about the state of his party 
And I know QAnon is like one of your real objects of obsession, right, Grace? You love the Q people, right? There was nothing better than the Dallas JFK Jr. resurrection moment. I lived for that, truly. There's one other topic on this podcast, and I'm just going to ask you whether you know anything about Bigfoot erotica. Do you? It's very funny because the second that you said he gave a speech in the house, whatever, about QAnon, you immediately unlocked a memory. I do remember the name Denver Riggleman because of what you are about to share. I do. Well, well, that's going to be on part two of the podcast tomorrow. So today, listen to part one. And tomorrow, if you want to hear about the accusations that Denver Riggleman was a consumer of Bigfoot erotica, I mean, again, he gives a very forceful rebuttal to this notion and says it's all a made up thing. But just the whole notion of Bigfoot erotica itself, who even knew such a thing existed? You learn something new every day here on Hell and High Water, Grace, I would say. We live in a truly absurd timeline. Everybody sit back today and tomorrow for part one and part two of our big 1-6 committee hearing preview episode on Hell and High Water. Instead of calling me and say, hey, we need you down at court. We've got a warrant for you. I would have gladly come. What did they do? They intercepted me getting on the plane. And then they put me in handcuffs. They bring me here. They put me in leg irons. They stick me in a cell. By the way, just historical note, I was in John Hinckley's cell. They seemed to think that that was like an important historical note. Okay? That's punitive. There was no reason on God's good earth for what they did today to an American citizen. That did not have to happen. It's terrorism, it's coercion. There's no excuse for what they did today. And America needs to know this. That was Peter Navarro emerging from the E. Barrett Prettyman Federal Courthouse in Washington, D.C. After having an indictment had been handed up by a federal grand jury of two charges of contempt of Congress, he'd been arrested, he'd been through a hearing, and now he was out whining and whinging. And we're here with Denver Riggleman, Former Republican congressman from the great state of Virginia, the Commonwealth, the person with great military and intelligence background, and most recently, one of the Republican staffers on the 1-6 committee. Denver, I've been waiting a long time to have this conversation with you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm curious what your take was. I was hosting live television when the Navarro thing happened, and we took him live for a couple minutes, and at some point, I had to put a stop to it. I love breaking news as much as anyone, but there's only so much bug-eyed gibberish that I'm willing to tolerate on live television, and we just cut him off. Tell me what you think about what Peter Navarro had to say and about the fact that the DOJ has thrown these two indictments at him. Well, number one, anybody who writes that uh, 36-page fiction novel called The Immaculate Deception, first of all, you can't take them that seriously, right? In intelligence, you always consider the source. And when you listen to that, the fact that he thought it was important to mention that he's in John Hinckley's cell, I can see why you walked away. I did read your comments yesterday. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, it's it's almost as if that they live their, their life in a non sequitur, right? An inconsistency of logic that excites them at all times. And, you know, you know, so watching that and seeing your reaction and other people's reaction, especially if you look at the far right, and you know this, John, for them, the United States of America had handcuffed a patriot. And that's the thing that we have to worry about going forward. I mean, I know people are worried about or they're, or they're concentrating or fixated on criminal indictments or they're fixated on exactly what the committee does at this time. The sad part is, is that in the next couple of years, just like the 9-11 report or the commission report and things like that, they go away. It's the lessons that we learn and what's happening in the future and how do we get our arms around sort of this online radicalization, fantastical world of beliefs that defy rationality. And I think that's the long-term issues that we're going to have. Well, the committee and then the Congress on essentially partisan lines have asked for criminal charges on contempt of Congress. I've made referrals to the DOJ on four occasions. They did one for Steve Bannon. They did one for Peter Navarro. They did one for Dan Scavino. And they did one for Mark Meadows. Up until yesterday, the only one that the DOJ had acted on relatively quickly was the Bannon request. And they had, in fact, indicted Bannon. Yesterday, we're recording this on Saturday, the DOJ decided they were going to indict Navarro, and they put out the word later that they were not going to indict Scabino or Meadows on contempt of Congress charges. We'll get into that in a second. I want to just focus, though, on one of the things that's true about Navarro, right? Even by Bannon standards, his brazenness was kind of incredible. He, he refused to cooperate with your committee. And then he went on television on MSNBC three times in the last five months with Ari Melber and essentially confessed to being a coup plotter, talked about the Green Bay sweep and thumbed his nose, I would say, gave the middle finger to the committee, to the DOJ, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, that's the kind of stuff that gets you in trouble with federal prosecutors. And and Denver, the reason I raise it is this. I think it does connect to the thing you were talking about a second ago, which is, do you think that what that's all about, what seems like totally irrational behavior that's like inviting getting indicted is about trying to make yourself a martyr and a hero in the eyes of the far right, that a Navarro looks at what's happened to Bannon and says, yeah, I'm going to throw myself in front of this oncoming train because that will make the far right love me all the more. So I'm a I'm a big Carl Sagan and Joseph Campbell fan, John. And I think the two words that I, I, I used, you know, not too, too long ago was apocalyptic exaggeration. And I think that apocalyptic exaggeration leads to money. I've always told individuals, even when I was doing counterterrorism work with Air Force Intelligence or the NSA or, or supporting the Office of Secretary of Defense on specific research and development projects and things like that, that the issue that we have as we're going forward is how do you actually stop radicalizing language or this type of exaggeration when I was doing counterterrorism? When I see this specific type of language used by Americans towards Americans, how do we actually stop that narrative or that story? I've honestly been saying that it's up to the voters, John, based on what they're hearing and what they're saying, if they're going to pick between facts and irrationality. Listen, I thought I had answers. I thought that if you use sort of fact-based arguments and maybe a little bit of humor, right, John, maybe, you know, that would work. Maybe if you shook it out of them, like, come on, you know, it's not possible that there's alien abductions. There's more of them in Wichita, Kansas than Washington, D.C. You know, that stuff doesn't seem to work. And I think it's because we don't have a very exciting narrative, John. You're, you know, you're an exciting guy. You're funny, right? You do those type of things. You're fairly intelligent, right? We both believe we have IQs over moron. But the issue that you have is that how do you compete with an apocalyptic story or the Great Tribulation, how do you compete with a Navarro who's absolutely sure that globalists in the deep state are trying to take over this country and that foreign powers interfere in our election? There's broken algorithms. I mean, that's exciting stuff for people. Right, and right. I'm not that exciting. As we head towards the big moment, yes. the first of the 1-6 committee hearings, that's that right. will uh, take place on Thursday. You'll have a primetime hearing for the first of a number. We'll come back to that in a moment. So this, this news related to Navarro was a big deal, and a big deal for the committee that you worked on, you spent many hours working for, and were very, very intensely engaged in for over a year, about a year? August 1st or 2nd was my first day with the committee, 2020. Of last year, and you left just like April about a month 30th. ago, right? Yeah, about okay. a month so, so nine months, basically, of, of brain-draining, back-breaking labor. And what you guys got from those four people I just mentioned before, Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino was sufficient stonewalling that the committee first, then the House said these guys should be held in contempt of Congress. As I said before, Navarro now indicted, Bannon now indicted. I want to hear Navarro yesterday talking about the committee, what he thinks of the committee, because I then want to hear from you, Denver, what the committee thought as they faced all this stonewalling from these four people and more, but these four people in particular. This committee is neither duly authorized nor properly constituted, meaning that it doesn't follow the rules of either the House itself or the committee's own authorizing resolution. I am not the only one who has filed uh, to question the validity of that kangaroo committee. Nancy Pelosi herself calls that committee unprecedented, and she's absolutely right. And and by the way, My book, Taking Back Trump's America, I need everybody in America to buy that book on Amazon today. He needs everyone to buy it because as he goes on to explain later, he's basically representing himself as a lawyer because he doesn't want to draw down his retirement funds. And and so he's basically like saying, everybody, I'm getting the fucking poorhouse here. Give me some money. I wanted to say one thing, you know, anybody who thinks that calling the committee a kangaroo committee and Nancy Pelosi calling it unprecedented, that those are synonymous, needs a little help with a Roger's and and a Webster's. But that basically has been his attitude, right? His attitude is this is a kangaroo committee. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to give them anything. I'm not going to recognize the authority of these subpoenas, even though there is a Supreme Court case that basically says the committee is authorized uh, and is empowered with subpoena authority. True. Very true, John. Did the committee expect more cooperation? The fact that people like Bannon and, and Navarro and Meadows and Scavino would stonewall, was that the expectation throughout? Were you guys surprised that they stonewalled the way they did? Were you surprised that the Justice Department did move more quickly on most of these contempt charges? Just give me a sense of how the committee looked at these kinds of witnesses. Well, I think the committee recognized pretty early that these witnesses are going to be hard to get in to even tell the truth or things like that, which was, you know, one of the things that we were working on is, is how do we identify those connections and individuals and things like that through data? 
and, and one of the things we were trying to do. But as far as the, you know, first of all, kangaroo committee is alarming alliteration, right? That's pretty crazy. But the issue, I think what you're talking about, John, too, and I thought personally, I'm going to use my opinion a lot of this, but I think I'm, I'm down the line, that it was going to be very difficult to get these individuals in to talk, regardless of their online presence or they're on the news. I mean, they're very, very brave, right? Right there, you know, Navarro was very brave, right? Uh, kangaroo committee, they took me out in handcuffs earlier when you said that. Um, this is the issue that you had, and I think the committee recognized that these individuals would be very brave on camera outside of the committee environment, but it would be very difficult to get them to come in and tell the truth, or they would plead the fifth. And we need a lot of, I would say, other evidence, right? Once they came in, we need a lot of other evidence to hit them over the head with. So I don't think there was ever an expectation that these individuals were going to come in willingly. I thought there was always this sort of idea or this objective that, hey, you know, this is going to be a slog. The issue is, is that when you have such a short amount of time, and I know people are like, oh, gosh, it's been going on a while. If you think about it, the committee was constituted on July 1st. You know, I didn't come on until August 1st. There was a norming, storming, forming, whatever that is for teams, right? You had to get the team together, and it, we didn't have a full staff on to probably November, December. So now you're looking at a really fast move, right? You're looking November to June. You have hearings, and they have to have a report out before they're done because, you know, John, this committee will not exist after January of 2023. So I think the committee always had expectations that this was going to be sort of a bare-knuckle legal fight. And I think they're a little bit surprised about what's happened in the last few days. That wasn't great, you know, for the committee. You think they're surprised that, that Meadows and Scabino were not charged with contempt of Congress by yeah. the DOJ? Yeah, I think I probably should be specific. Sorry, John. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. that's what they were surprised about. I really do. I think there was a little bit of surprise. Here's the other thing, though, John, and I'm not trying to be overly optimistic. I'm not trying to be even pessimistic. Just what I feel, right, opinion-wise on facts and data is that, you know, what Meadows gave up, what you know Scabino to be, which is the comms portion of Trump's campaign. We know about his connections and his interconnectivity. I think the American public, if they pay attention, if they're facts-based, they're going to see pretty quickly, right, that, uh, you know, there was a lot of organization going on around Stop the Steal specifically. Right. And so what we have to do is we have to use facts and we have to make them excited and paint the narrative. But I don't know if, I don't know if a indictment, I don't know if a misdemeanor, I don't know if them going through this at the time wouldn't have made those two more of a martyr to the system or, you know, more political prisoners based on how the far right presents this stuff. Let's just first say, you know, all these guys are important. There's a reason why Navarro and Bannon and, and Scavino and Meadows are in the crosshairs. Meadows is the chief staff of the, of the White House. I think most people know that's an important job, but I, I've long argued it's the second most powerful job in the world. The person who control, basically runs the White House and essentially controls what the president sees, what they don't see, what they do, what they don't do. And they have an enormous power to shape the agenda, to shape action, et cetera. And you've made it very clear you did the, your first post committee interviews last week, one with Anderson Cooper on CNN and one on CNN the, on, on Friday morning, Meadows is very much at the center of the story for you, right? But one of my takeaways from those interviews was the Meadows text messages, the Meadows email, Meadows' communication, the stuff he turned over to the committee, tells a devastating and damning story. I'm, I'm summarizing your message. A, I want you to talk about how important Meadows is to this larger story the committee is now going to be telling the, the American people over the next month. But also, in the case of most criminal cases, you know, the paper trail is what always does people in. It's not what you get out of an interrogation or what you get with them on the stand. It's what they wrote contemporaneously, what they put down in their email, what they put down in their text messages. And in the case of Meadows, it seems like a lot of that stuff is pretty fucking damning. It is. I mean, the, the thing that you got, we got into, John, and I think you're going to appreciate this as a journalist and what you do, the issue that we had is when you're seeing that damning stuff, is it seemed that people were actually believing it? Or when you're interviewing individuals, they say, we actually believe the election was stolen. So the damning part of it for me was the belief systems. The damning part of it for me was sort of the inundation of these conspiracy theories all the way through every level of the Republican government. So again, there's the criminal part of this. But what I'm trying to get across, you know, when I said I walked away from the computer, it started as laughter. I mean, you got to remember right. some of the craziest text messages were at the beginning. Pa pause, for, pause for one second, Denver. Sure. Just just explain that for anybody who didn't see the interview. You like got, were the ones who identified your technical team. We're the ones. That got into this stuff. So you were among the first people in the world to see these text messages yeah. off of Meadows' phone. I was. Right. You said in this interview, you were shocked, horrified, and had to walk away from the computer, but you were so stunned, right? Yeah. You know, I said I went from amusement to horror because the first ones, I started to laugh. And, you know, I said, well, this must be, you know, <laughs> this must be unique to the text message thread, right, John? Like, what? 
But as I went down through there and started to see even members of Congress sending things that were so outlandish or the type of organization they were doing with trying to get people like Sidney Powell to certain office spaces and things like that, or Eastman or Clark, all the sort of major players, you have to get up for a second and say, wait, I know these people. Remember, John, I was in Congress with these people. I was there. I know them. This isn't like I'm looking at people I don't know or I haven't talked to. And I think that's why I had to get up and walk away. It started with laughter. Then it turned, you know, like, oh, my gosh, I would get up and like this. That's pretty insane. But then when I started breaking out all the links on the text messages, whether you're talking about YouTube videos, things of that nature, the Donald.win, those type of things, parlor videos, all of those were being connected into that 2,319 text message ecosystem. So when I said I got up and walked away, initially it was laughing. I started walking away like, I can't believe it's that guy or that gal who did that. And that's the issue I had is I had men and women on those text messages that were stunning. And the other thing that's... Were, were, you, were you stunned to see Jenny Thomas in that, in that group? Um, that's a long story. I, a little bit. The great thing is that I've had a lot of help from Republicans currently and former Republicans, which there are individuals that really don't want to come out and talk about this. I was turned on to Jenny by members, former members of members Congress. Of, members of Congress mm-hmm. yeah. That's right. And And I remember when I was made the senior technical advisor, the members know that congressman was just my cover. I'm not a great politician. I think that's sort of obvious, you know, but um, I I was really good at intelligence work. And being a congressman or a distiller, those are my cover. I mean, over 20 years in military industrial complex and the military and intelligence work, I've been around. But I've done some really high-end niche research and development technology on phones and on communications. So I got a call from some of the congressional individuals that used to serve and some current. And here was their thing, like, you need to look for some of these individuals. We know they did it. And isn't that interesting, John? That's how data and sort of human intelligence fuses together. So that's some of the things that people I don't think realize is that a lot of Republicans who are very quiet or who are sort of shrugging their shoulders like, eh, It'll pass. They're the ones who are helping me a lot behind the scenes. And, and obviously, I won't give that up, but that's, that's happening. So you see all these text messages, and you go from laughter to shock to horrified. And the reason I raised Jenny Thomas is because, you know, she's the wife of Clarence Thomas, who's the Supreme, sitting Supreme Court, sitting justice on mm-hmm. the United States Supreme Court, which feeds into the notion of this thing that you have said a couple times now publicly and, and previously to me privately, which is all three branches of government are involved. It, you're talking about a coup an attempted coup in which it's not just some fringe faction in the White House, and that would be bad enough. And it's bad enough that it was just that it it goes up as far as it goes to the White House chief of staff, to to the president of the United States at the time. But it's also, there's these Congress people who are involved. There are people in the judiciary who are involved, people who are related to people in the judiciary. You have three branches of government all harboring conspiracy theory nuts who are also now in one way or the other, aiding or abetting the attempt to overthrow the outcome of free and fair election in America. It has to have been part of what was stunning about this to you is that there's no branch of government that's safe from this in one way or the other. Everyone's involved. And that sounds like crazy parallax view, 70s conspiracy talk, like three days of the condor or something. But like, it really is. On some level, each branch of government had some connection to this. And that's where it starts to get pretty freaky. I think it's so intertwined, right? And if everybody has the same idea set, John, if they all believe that there's a globalist takeover of the United States, right, based on foreign intervention of our election systems, whether it's through multiple companies owned by the Chinese, I I saw Italy gate. I saw hammer and scorecard NSA conspiracy theories. I saw other foreign countries videos sent to Mark Met. I saw this. It's, you know, it, when, when people are like, oh gosh, Denver's just simply going down the line or this can't be true. All I have to do is refer to what they sent and what Meadows gave to the committee. There's no secret sauce here. The secret sauce right. is in finding the numbers and attaching to the names and the, the hundreds of hours of work to validate all of those. But the real thing is that I'm just looking at the communications of individuals that were given to the committee with the phone numbers attached. That's it. It's that simple. And so when people try to come at me, I'm like, well, here's the fact of it. And they get very quiet. Well, this is it. This is fact of I, you know, I do wish that all the text messages were still safely secured. I think them coming out during the hearings would have been very effective. However, it has excited people in some way, which was sort of curious to me on what's going on. But it's just data, John. 
It's just, this is the, and by the way, if all of them, and I don't think all of them will come out. I I mean, I know that all of them were given to CNN by somebody, but I don't think, I got to tell you, there's blocks of text messages that are so outlandish that I, I don't I don't know if they should be out in the public, but another part of me thinks the public should see how intertwined those conspiracies were and that all of those individuals that you talked about, John, were on that same boat. They were right. they were rowing in that direction. The conspiracy theories on there are no more real than Mordor. And that's yeah, that's right. the thing I think that was stunning to me. In some sense, whether Meadows is I mean it's it's obviously a matter of consequence that the DOJ has decided not to charge him with criminal contempt of Congress. It's a matter of of substance. It's always been the case. Every lawyer you talk to has always said that Scamino and Meadows are in a different category. Senior White House advisors may have a greater claim to privilege than than Steve Bannon, who was not even working in the White House at that time, and Peter Navarro, who was a trade advisor. I never think I've ever heard the guy talk about trade anywhere, but that was his job title. But the chief of staff, Dan Scavito has sent out all the president's tweets. Those guys are a different sphere. And we don't really know fully what the DOJ's theory is here on why they're not getting indicted. But it's, it's important. We can go spend a lot of time on that. I don't want to. The question about Meadows is, as we head into these hearings, which is what I want to try to build into here, is the fact that he didn't get charged with contempt of Congress does not mean that the DOJ can't charge him with a federal crime going forward. It's a subsidiary matter. And we don't know what the DOJ's posture is going to be. The Navarro thing doesn't tell us anything about it. Bannon doesn't tell us anything about that. The Meadows and Scavino declinations on contempt of Congress don't tell us anything about whether Merrick Garland and his team are going to end up charging people all the way up the ladder in the White House. We don't know the answer to that. I'm not even going to ask you to speculate about it because you don't know the answer. I don't. But I, I do want you to say, because you know what the committee has, on Meadows. I do want you to say what, how important you think, as the American public tunes in, watches these hearings going forward, how important is Meadows going to be to the story? Because that's what the committee is trying to do here over the next month, is tell a story. How central a figure is Meadows in the story that they tell about what happened in the run-up to and on the day of January 6th? I think Meadows, his text message was the structure for the story because it goes from November 3rd to January 20th. You can see the beginning thoughts of how to fight the election results all the way through January 20th, which is really interesting to me. And so that allowed sort of a structure of who to identify going through was this is what was happening in this time block. For instance, John, December 1st, right? William Barr comes out and says, hey, you know, the AG, that there was no evidence of widespread fraud. So if you look at text messages between December 1st and December 19th, when Donald Trump said this is going to be wild based on Navarro's immaculate deception you know, bad shittery. You can look and see why was there still an escalation after Barr says there's no widespread fraud. That's really interesting, right? So you can start to structure an investigation based on those text messages. Now that you've gone through a thousand witnesses, now that there's other data that our teams were able to identify and that they were able to identify, the senior investigators were very savvy. But it did give sort of the baseline, you know, the bottom line up front, as we say in the military, the bluff was the Meadows text messages. Your decision, Denver, to come out and start doing public stuff ahead of these 1-6 committee hearings, having left the committee a month ago, you're now out, as I said before, you did these couple CNN appearances. And some people over at the committee got pretty unhappy about that. And I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to this because in the wake of those appearances on CNN, the staff director over there, David Buckley, sent an email around and, and he said that your appearance on CNN was in direct contravention to his employment agreement. I want you to know that I'm deeply disappointed in his decision to discuss the select committee's work on television. Again, this is still Buckley. And that, of course, was then reported in in Politico. So I just want to give you a chance to to sort of say, I mean, now you're talking to me. I like living on the wrong side of the law, Denver. So if you are in breach of your employment contract, uh, that's great. I'm happy to be there with you. I like running a little little outlaw podcast here. But I do want you to get a chance to respond to that about whether you've done something wrong or why you've decided to speak out. Just what do you say to your former staff director? I didn't do it. It's silly to introduce drama like that. That was the whole email was false. I don't have an employment agreement that stops me from doing this. I don't need authorization. I'm a former congressman. I came on under a threshold so I can even be a consultant, run my companies. I just think there were some communication issues in the committee that have, I think, are being fixed. I don't even want to throw anybody under the bus there, but he was just mistaken. That was an email from one person that somebody leaked because they were trying to, I don't know what they were trying to do, but that's been a problem over there. So I don't want to take away from the committee, but it was silly. Uh, The email was wrong. And that's really an interesting thing that that email was sent late at night. 
it seemed like maybe that email was just something he probably shouldn't have sent send on. And then somebody thought it would be, I guess, funny to leak right a week before the hearings. All of it is just just silly. And I'll probably be commenting on it pretty aggressively after the committee is over. By suggesting that it happened late at night, are you suggesting that possibly that it was like one of those, like a drunk text kind of thing? Oh, uh, just a, I think just somebody who was emotional. Emotional. Okay. Denver, I want to talk to you about the broader task at hand for the committee and some of the other big character arcs that we're going to see as they unfurl this story in these hearings throughout this month. But first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Denver Riggleman on Hell and High Water right after these messages. Welcome back to Hell and High Water with Denver Riggleman. And Denver, you know, I I mentioned the large task that the committee has, which is telling a compelling story about what happened on the run-up to January 6th and and on the day itself, uh, on the basis of all the things that the committee's learned. And I asked this question a few months ago to one of the Democratic members of the committee, Jamie Raskin, and sort of said, hey, you know, how do you see the task that the committee faces? And he started out by saying, look, we sort of started... Part one of this work, in a way, was the second Trump impeachment. The impeachment managers in the House told the story, the inside story, a version of the inside story, what was known then. And that was just a couple weeks after the riot of how Trump and his acolytes had tried to stage a coup. But that was an incomplete version of it. And now this committee has more data about the inside story of the attempt at the coup. But he also said there's this broader constellation of issues that we want to get to. This is how he laid out what he saw the task ahead as being back in January. Again, this is Jamie Raskin talking to me in January uh, a few months ago, January 2022. We have to put that whole thing together in a story. What led up to January 6th and then the explosion of violence on January 6th yeah. and how close we came to losing our democracy on that day. So here's the challenge the committee faces. I think you and I agree. You said this the other day on CNN. You said, you know, the and this is not <laughs> this is not breaking news, right? That the challenge that the committee has with these hearings is to tell a story, as I said a second ago, and try to tell a story that is convincing to the, I would say, relatively small sliver of Americans who don't already have a point of view about this. There's going to be a lot of of people who already think Trump's a criminal and think that there was an attempted coup and think that our democracy is at stake. Their minds are going to be changed by this. And the people who think that the election was stolen by the Democrats and the Donald Trump, who believe the big lie, they're not going to have their minds changed either. But there are millions of Americans who are kind of in the middle and haven't really focused on this. So there's a lot to play for here. And the story that gets told, how they tell it, et cetera, how they tell it's really important. It's a big challenge. You pointed out the thousand witnesses, the hundred thousand documents have been gone through. I don't know how many emails, how many text messages. Like what's the what's the order of magnitude on that? Massive. And just the call detail record alone, John, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a data for like this in the history of the United States for Congress specifically. It's just uh, it's hard to quantify. After this, John, once I do quantify it, I'll let you know, but you're talking tens of millions of lines of data. Yeah, I mean, tens of millions of lines of data. You can't understate the importance of all that data that you guys analyze, Denver, but for normal American citizens, ordinary American voters, they're not interested in tens of millions of lines of data. What they're interested in is getting to the bottom uh, of what happened on one six, if they're interested in that at all. Obviously, a lot of Republicans think this is all just a red herring. But for anybody who's persuadable, what they're going to be looking for, I think, as they watch these hearings, is some big takeaways. And that means that the committee can't, I think, get sidetracked into spending too much time talking about even really important issues like Facebook and Twitter and the role of social media in fomenting the insurrection or these far-right militia people. Again, super important issue. But for the average viewer, the only way this committee is going to break through is if they tell a story and tell a story that's filled with dramatic turns and revelations and big characters like you would write a book if you wanted it to be a page turner. Do you think that people on the committee understand that that's what this is all about? I hope so. I mean, I... uh, Do you think so? I think so. There's been certainly a lot of meetings. And you have to remember when you have what, 50-plus people on the committee, John? There's certainly strong opinions, A-type personalities, right? You even have differences of opinion based on, you know, what your p- political inclination is, which, you know, with our team, we didn't have any. We had to stay sort of down the line because we're just looking at data. But, you know, I've done this for 20 years. I'm pretty damn good at it, and so is the team. And so we tried to stay, you know, almost neutral. But you can see the the angst of how you present this. 
And I think that was one of the reasons why they chose six hearings was they have to be concise. They have to tell the story and hit the high parts. Initially, I was like, man, six hearings isn't a lot. But I think that the the, the thought is, and I'm sort of coming around to it, is you because I think they actually heard people saying we have to tell a story in a concise way that does read like a book. That's right. a narrative. That's a story. But right. it can't lose the interest of the American people. And I think you could add three more hearings. I think you could add a hearing over the last 18 months, you know, the radicalization pipeline yeah. for social media. But I think yeah. it will lose people, yeah. John. I think you're right. So I think that's why they're having a very concise storytelling for those six hearings. I think that's what the strategy is, just base, you know, my opinion, because I don't want to speak for the committee at this point, but my opinion is that's why they went to six hearings was because of what you just asked, which is a very perceptive question. Well, I, I'll take it a little further, though. The thing I've been ringing the bell about for months and months is just to say this. You know, people say, well, this could be their moment to have a Watergate hearing. So Watergate hearings changed everything. I, I haven't looked about I can't I can't remember. And I, did, I haven't looked. I should have probably at the number of hearings the Watergate committee did at a time when the monoculture was there, when millions of people tuned in to watch TV. There were three networks and, and there was not a lot of competition. And they had millions and millions and millions of viewers. Right. I would say, hey, you know what? Like, first of all, some of these hearings got to be in prime time. Second of all, that's not even enough. They got to figure out a very subtle, very sophisticated social media strategy, uh, a digital media strategy. They got to go high. They got to go low. This is a fragmented, complicated media universe, right. a very polarized environment. How do you get the story out there? How do you reach people who you can't do normally reach? If you're really going to move the country, you're not going to just gonna be able to do a bunch of hearings that take place on cable during the day. And, and yet, what, as I understand it, we have six hearings, two of them in primetime, Denver. That's, I don't think the committee's announced that yet, but I believe it to be the case. The first one and the last one over the course of two and a half weeks. I agree with you. Concision's important, but I worry that just in terms of like, can they tell this story in a compelling way that they haven't thought creatively enough about how to break through and that this is just going to be like one more set of hearings like the impeachment hearings were, like the Mueller stuff was. Yeah, most Americans weren't paying attention to either one of those first nope, two impeachments. Didn't care. Or to, or to the Mueller committee and didn't watch those hearings. I mean, we all do, but most normal people don't. And if most normal people don't pay attention to this, it's not going to work. People didn't even know I was on the committee. I, when I, <laughs> but, you know, I think, God, Republican taken up by QAnon, I'm on the committee. Everybody's got to know, right, John? I'm so famous, man. Wow. Nobody knows <laughs> Jack all, right? You know, if I talk to people, even there, they're like, hey, Denver, I'm so happy you're our congressman. I'm like, I haven't been your congressman for 15 months, 16 months, right? I, and I think that's the issue you're talking about, John, is that you talked about millions of people watching the Watergate hearings. What I call that is a multicast world. You had networks, three or four major networks, and people were locked into that. But they got those three or four networks. More technology, more networks, more social media means we're in a unicast world. Individuals can pick their stovepipe. They can pick their echo chamber. They can just watch RSBN, right? Right side broadcasting news. They can just watch Newsmax. That's the issue. That's the challenge of the committee is how do you make this socially a media compelling because we're in a new universe now. You know, people said, well, Twitter's not the real world. Social media is not the real world. I beg to differ. That's changing. And that's changing because of two things on the far right. Hell, we could be having this about the far left two years from now. But on the far right, it's digital profits. It's profits that are spelled P-R-O-P-H-E-T and profit P-R-O-F-I-T. When you have profits and profits, there's a specific type of challenge the committee has in reaching those individuals, and you have to make it compelling. Again, though, if half the country, or say 40% of the country, believes that those were actually patriots that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, this is just a reinforcement that they did the right thing. And that's, I think, some of the worries that I have and some of the warnings I've been giving is that these hearings could also be helpful to the far right as we go forward. Right. Let me just ask you this question in a bold and blunt way. Knowing that these hearings were going to be important and that it had to be a story and that they had to figure out a very complicated media environment in which to try to break through, did you see a lot of examples of sophistication on the committee, either on its staff or through outside consultants or, or anybody they brought in to get advice from? Did you see a lot of a, a, much of an appreciation within the committee for the importance and the, the difficulty of the task we're now talking about, which is in terms of the media challenge, like how are we going to do these hearings? Do you have experts who are coming in and, and explain to them how to create a multi-tiered 
digital, analog, broadcast, narrowcast, social, over the top, asynchronous. Did they, have, did they have experts coming in? Were there people on staff who were like, this is going to be a big deal. We got to start making this strategy. Was that something they put a lot of thought into? Were they sophisticated about it? Had they prepared for it in a way that you were like, wow, these guys really get this? Um, I was not on those discussions and not that I'm aware of, and I was on a lot of discussions, but it could be maybe there were some compartmented discussions that I'm not aware of. As I said beforehand, you knew that was my yeah. fear. There's multiple things that you have to hit simultaneously in that media space. And if you don't, you're lost. Yeah. So you're a little worried about this, basically, about whether this is, whether these are going to just be a little bit too much like other hearings we've seen in the past where they've taken up a lot of time on cable, but they haven't really moved the needle very much in terms of the American public's perception. That's one of your concerns going into the hearing? I don't think it's just my concern. I think it's the committee and how they do this with the amount of data they have and how they have to present it in a concise way with a narrative on multiple channels. When I'm saying channels, it's exactly what I'm talking. John, you're, you know the question I'm answering. Yeah. You know, and yeah. how do you have that multimedia type of thing? Now, what I have seen, they've been very robust in saying how to use video on these hearings, how to use types of data that our team was able to aggregate. I have heard that. But as far as what you're talking about on the other side, like a media experts or sophistication on how to make sure it's spread far and wide, they obviously have a comms team that's pretty effective, good people. But I don't know. I think this has been such a learning curve and it's been so fast. I, I don't know if they've been able to actually evolve fast enough with everything that's happening in parallel. And that's, that is a worry. I, I hope I'm answering that question. There's right. so much yeah. happening that I don't know if they were resource limited on their ability to see how this actually is projected into the vast media landscape we have right now. So I want to come back to two characters who are going to be central to this story that gets told in this month in, in various ways. I mentioned one before is Mike Pence. The one witness that we know that has leaked before uh, this started, I assumed it was a planned leak. They're going to have Michael Ludig, J. Michael Ludig, a longtime conservative legal scholar, a former judge, someone who's not had a big high public profile in most of his career, hasn't done very much, hasn't done very many interviews, hasn't been on television very much in his whole career, was an advisor to Pence. Uh, and someone who basically, when John Eastman suggested that Pence had the uh, unilateral authority to overturn the election, uh, he said, no, that's not true. And he's been out in public. He's written some things about the threat to democracy. He's now being called as a witness. We now know this is the case. I want to ask you, before I play a little looting sound, I want to ask you this. I know you're not going to front run the committee and reveal secret witnesses on this podcast or anywhere else, because I know you have too much respect for the committee's work to do that. Are there going to be witnesses that are going to surprise us? Other than Michael Lewis, <laughs> who, 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 was, who was, didn't really, I mean, I, he's an important guy. I mean, I think a good witness maybe, but he's not somebody who has set the, the hearts aflutter or the pulses racing of many people uh, when we learned that he was going to be on the witness panel. I think there, Are there others I, that I, will? I think there will be some witnesses that surprise the public. And, you know, Judge Ludig, you know, I have a lot of respect for, her, but I, I, I don't think the committee is, is trying to make this boring. The issue that they have is who's going to show up. Of course. Of course. I'm not critiquing yeah. the committee. I'm just curious as to whether they have any tricks up their sleeve that are really going to make people go, whoa, that guy's testifying? Or I think they're going to have some data that goes, well, but I do think, here I, I'm going to I'm going to say this, I do think you're going to have some whoa moments on people that show up. Okay. All right. Let's play this Ludig sound here because I think it's really instructive about what we're talking about in terms of storytelling. Here's Ludig doing, I, I think maybe his first interview Maybe his first interview, like uh, the recorded interview ever. The guy, again, is not someone who's done a lot of interviews, no. but uh, certainly in this context, this is a very early interview. This is with Politico Deep Dive, which is a, a Politico product of, for, that Playbook makes. This is back in February of just this year. Here's Ludig actually telling a little story about what happened in the run up to January 6th. I was first called uh, by uh, the vice president's counts, outside counsel, Richard Cullen, on the evening of January 4th. We now know that that was after the fateful Oval Office meeting that day between the president and vice president, where John Eastman made the argument that the vice president could overturn the election, you know, unilaterally. So that's a, a, a novelistic kind of detail. That's like an in the room kind of detail that that kind of enlivens the story. I'll tell you another one that just came out in this piece of news, Maggie Haberman in the New York Times last week, breaks this story, something that she was work, got out of her book research for her forthcoming book on Trump, that she, Maggie being a news hound, she's like, I'm not going to hold this for the book. It might not hold. I got to get this out now because that could come out in those committee hearings. So she put it out in the New York Times. Uh, Maggie's no dummy. And this is the story of Mark Short, Pence's chief of staff, serious person, doing something he says he had never done before, 
which is going to the head of the vice president's Secret Service tale and saying, Donald Trump is going to turn on Mike Pence because Mike Pence isn't going to do what Donald Trump wants. And when Donald Trump turns on Mike Pence, it could endanger the vice president's life. We got to take this security threat seriously. That's a fucking incredible piece of reporting, Denver. And, and you put that together with the looting thing. It tells you how important Pence is to the story, how dramatic it is. Tell me about how important you think Mike Pence is to this, what actually happened. I mean, we know how important it was to what happened on January 6th, but to the story that the committee wants to tell, the efforts to pressure Pence into doing this thing, how much is that going to factor into the story the committee wants to tell? I think it's going to be huge. And I read somewhere about Pence that for the far left, there's an inconvenient fact that Mike Pence really was sort of the central point to saving the Republic that day, right, for the certification of votes. I've been with Vice President Pence, right? I've been on Air Force Two. I've been in meetings with him. I wasn't surprised that he did what he did. I guess some of the things behind the scenes obviously were surprising as the facts came out. For anybody to say, oh, that wasn't surprising what Mark Short said or Judge Ludic would be ludicrous, right? But I will say that I think Mike Pence is a central figure to the hearings. And I think you're going to see that during the hearings. Again, I I do have so much respect for the committee. I'm not going to get in the way of that. But I think what I just said should make you smile a little bit is that your question is, is spot on just spot on as we go forward here. In terms of the centrality of the efforts to, to, to pressure Pence, you think we'll learn new things about those efforts in this? In the, the course I do. Of hearings? I do. You know, when you're looking at the, the Meadows text messages, that's one thing. But I think what you're going to see is how many individuals were involved with alternate electors. And, and I won't go too much further than that, but it's, right. it's so much more involved, I think, than the American public. Like, John, you, you, you look at this every day, and so do other journalists and open source intelligence researchers and things like that. And I'm in that world, right, of being on the committee, doing the data, talking to outside sources, other Republicans calling me, knowing all the ins and outs of things. And I have to be very careful that I don't even let things slip, which is part of my intelligence training, which I've had for 20 years. Right. But I can give sort of hope that there's a hope that the committee with what they have and what I've seen, can present that case in a way that the American public understands it and how aggressive some of the things that were being done between November 3rd and January 6th actually were. But you think that it's specifically on the question of Pence that we're going to learn more than we already know. We know a fair amount about what Trump did from the various books that have been written and other things. You think we're going to learn some new things about the efforts to pressure Pence into being part of this criminal conspiracy to overturn a free and fair election. We're going to learn new things, you think, in the course of the the hearings. I do. And yeah, I do. Were you before this New York Times story appeared about Mark Short alerting the head service agent for the vice president that he feared for the, the, the safety of the vice president, given what he knew about Trump's intentions and Trump's predilections? Was that news to you? Well, how about this? If the committee had done those interviews, my guess is that the committee was aware, but I, I, won't, I, I won't go into that personally. Was that news to you? Or did you, or did you read that story and go, good thing she got that out there now, because that story would have been blown in the uh, I, I, I mean, it. Uh, sure, it was news to me. Okay, that was not wholly convincing. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, totally news to me. I was shocked. So shocked, stunned. Uh, all right, fair enough. We're going to take one more break, and then we'll be back with more of Denver Riggleman on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Denver Riggleman, former Virginia congressman, former Republican staffer on the 1-6 committee. We've been previewing the 1-6 committee hearings in part one here of this special two-part episode of Hell and High Water. So here's my next question, Denver. You know you and I are aligned about the importance of the work of this committee and the risk to American democracy, not just what happened on January 6th, but what January 6th represents the forces in play that are still out there and maybe stronger now than they were before. For many people, and I would say this is true for political people, activists, even for the people who are casual observers of politics. In the end, we've talked about Mark Meadows, we've talked about Mike Pence. In the end, what people care about is Donald Trump. The question of, are we going to learn stuff about Donald Trump's involvement here? Does the committee have him? You know, is there going to be, at the end of this, it's going to be clear that he should be indicted? Your friend, Liz Cheney, started this ball rolling in December when she first came out and basically pointed at federal statute and said, here's where I think the president may have broken the law. And, and the notion that the committee would go after Donald Trump. Let me actually ask you that question first. When you joined the committee last August, did you think this committee is going after Donald Trump? That that's within its remit? Or did you think we have to tell this big story to get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th? If that includes Trump, fine. But did you think this committee is going to have the balls to potentially recommend, send a criminal referral to the DOJ on Donald Trump? When you got in, did you think that was on the agenda? 
gosh, it's an interesting question because I thought that was on the agenda. But even in the first briefings, it was evidence for me personally, I said that we have to actually follow the evidence on what's happening before we can make any assertive, assertive conclusions. Um, but Yeah, I'm not saying what you would say in public. Yeah. I'm saying like whether you thought the committee was like, hey, you know, if that's where the evidence leads, we'll go after Donald Trump. You thought that that was like. Oh, I don't a, think there was any question that the, the intestinal fortitude was there to file that evidence to that end. Yeah, I think if anybody yeah. questions that about the committee specifically, I think they understood that they could have to do things that are very, very tough politically based on just facts, based on data. You know, and sure. So sure. I, I do believe they had the intestinal fortitude from the beginning to pursue that if that's where the data led. And would you agree with me that though over time, because of the evidence that came out, various, sometimes in public, sometimes at the committee, sometimes starting in private the committee and then becoming public, and the way that particularly Congresswoman Cheney talked about this and started to introduce the notion of the former president may have broken the law and that there should be some kind of a potentially more than one grounds that the stakes got raised over time because that became part of the discussion. And I think now a lot of people, that's the whole story for a lot of them. And I, you, know, you and I could talk for hours about why that's not the whole story. It's not you know, Donald Trump's not relevant. He's not irrelevant, but he's not the whole story by any means. There's these broader issues. But I think for a lot of people, that question at the end of all this is the American public going to say, fuck, man, Trump committed a crime. Do you think that's not kind of the central question for a lot of people, whether it should be or not is another matter, but that's what I think a lot of people I do. think. I think, about um, I think our goal, our objective, I'm going to answer this question just very specifically. If you're looking at the evidence and data, is to try to identify or convince 3 to 5% of the public. The first thing is that this was a very bad thing that happened. And you can talk about yeah. dereliction of duty. You can talk about deliberate incompetence. You can talk about all those things, you know, from the president on down. But it's that 3 to 5% to just first say, hey, you might have believed this was just a peaceful demonstration, or you might have believed that this wasn't as bad as you thought, but this is bad. And then the next step, and this is the step that's difficult, John, this gets you, was it criminal? And I said the other day, I don't know. I have my yeah. own opinion on it. I have an opinion that's pretty strong, right? I have an opinion that look at what I've seen, what I've done in counterterrorism my entire life, that this certainly looks like a coup. But again... You you know, Wait, would you, 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 you're not no. a lawyer. I just want to catch you just because you just said it. you said a very strong opinion. You mean about whether Trump should be prosecuted? Is that what, when you said I have a very strong opinion? Is that what you meant? Or you're referring to? Yeah, I mean, I have a strong opinion that there's there um, that when you're looking at obstruction of Congress, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting how that's presented by the committee, because I do believe when you look at the preponderance of evidence just on what I've seen in data, there's something strong to me that, that there should be some kind of referral to the Department of Justice. Right. Are there other issues where you think there's a plausible case that beyond contempt of Congress where Trump has uh, done something illegal? I Like, for example, Denver, I don't understand this. How is it that Donald Trump's not being prosecuted under federal and state law for making that phone call to Brad Raffensperger? No idea. That's the issue. I mean, when you're talking about state statutes, I think that's a little different, right, than federal statutes. But that's a federal. That falls under a federal statute. Yeah. That's not illegal. I don't know. I don't know what is. He, he called. called and he called. I know Georgia's sort of pursuing that. And I think if I had to say anything about what you're going to see on the committee, I think it's to the follow the money portion of this. That's the thing I would be paying attention to. But because of my respect for the committee, I don't want to speculate anymore. I can I can do my opinions and stuff like that. And I know once the committee is done, me and you can have right. a very in-depth conversation on this. But I'm still very – I'm just very respectful. I got, I got it. I, got, I hear you. I respect your respectfulness. When you say the follow the money element of it, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm talking about anything that falls sort of under the FEC umbrella. When you're talking about nonprofits, 501s, when you're talking about the money that was actually utilized for day of on January 6th, I think that's what people need to look at, too. I think that might be, for me personally, follow the money is one of the most important things we can look at in the investigation. Let's play one little piece of Donald Trump himself at this rally on May 26th in Casper, Wyoming. We'll talk a bit about this a little more later because, of course, he went there to try to stick the shiv into Liz Cheney and support <laughs> one of her many primary rivals, one who strangely used to be almost as anti-Trump as, as Cheney. Yeah. That's, it goes down, a, that goes down a rabbit hole. But let's play Donald Trump here, what he said about the insurrection on May 26th in Casper, Wyoming. Now you look at the so-called word insurrection, January 6th. What a lot of crap. What a lot of crap. And most of this country knows it. And you know who else knows it? The Democrats. It's another con job, just like Russia, Russia, Russia. This was made up by Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. I mean, don't forget, 
I've been investigated more than Billy the Kid, <laughs> Jesse James, and the great legendary mobster, Alphonse Capone. If you add them all up and double them and triple them, I've taken the cake for investigations. So it's weird, Denver. It's almost ridiculous to say there's the list is as long as all of our arms put together of things that we have seen in Trump that we thought we'd never seen a president. But the idea that this president's out there, he like, le- cites Jesse James, Billy the Kid, and the great legendary mobster Alphonse Capone, all of them criminals, and says, hey, you know what? I've been investigated three times as much of them, as if to say that somehow is an exonerating fact. <laughs> hey, I've been investigated more than murderers. I mean, yeah. I'm banned, right? <laughs> no, right, seriously. Like, so, that's it's, that's it's, not a great comparison. It's, it's so batshit. But, it is. But, <laughs> It's just, it's just that, the man's fucking got bats in the belfry, man. But I ask you, oh, but how brilliant, John? Yeah, how, buddy, he's that's brilliant. I, you know, the people in the audience are like, yeah, hell yeah, you're right. I've been trying to explain this. God, John, I, I feel like I'm losing my mind. I'm taking crazy pills here. That speech was incredibly effective, incredibly effective in Casper, Wyoming. And uh, and by the way, insurrection is not a so-called word. It's actually a word. And But I mean, I the issue that you have is that the, the, the messaging, which is so much more effective by the Republicans than the Democrats on this, the messaging that this was a peaceful protest, the, the messaging that the election was indeed stolen. The election was that even if it was stolen, there was so much fraud that it still needs to be fixed. The cover term for election integrity, which is a cover for Stop the Steal, which actually Stop the Steal is a QAnon-based conspiracy theory. All of this stuff is very, very effective. And that's the issue that this goes back to your question about the sophisticated sort of media outreach. Boy, how full circle is that? What a memory. But it's that they have a sophisticated media outreach. They're incredibly sophisticated. If you're facts-based and you're still doing traditional investigations, here's the thing. What we are learning, what we're evolving is we cannot do traditional investigations anymore. Congress needs to have, they almost need to bring back, what was it, the OTA that ended in 1995, the Office of Technology Assistance or whatever it was. Assessment. Assessment. They need to bring that kind of thing back, you know, like OTA, because we are going into a new world, right? And we are so far behind. The government is behind the ability of other people who have no rules. They have no strictures on what they can do. They can pump into the social media ecosystem while we're sitting here trying to figure out how to build a case. We have to attack much more aggressively. That's learning. And that's the challenge of the committee and the hope that I have for the committee is that, listen, there's going to be this thing in the future. We have to learn our lessons right now just as we're learning how they're doing their business. And right now, I would say the far right sort of messaging ecosystem is so effective. And we talk about bad shit. But brother, if, you know, 50 million people or 57% of the Republican Party believe that those were patriots on January 6th, they're messaging right to the base. And that's that's very effective. So l- let me just uh, say, I don't think I got proper respect from you on the fact that, that I'm a dorky enough to know that the OTA was called the Office of Technology Assessment. I did not I mean, give like, you enough. I mean, I, I'm I, I, trying I to go some, back in time. And the Office I, of Technology I, Assessment, which I think ended in 1995. I need, I some, pro- I need some props on that. I need some props on that. Like Props? Of, I, I don't like, know who, what else to do. Who does like, cheers. A, I, I'm cheers. almost done with my Guinness during yeah. this. Cheers to you, my right. friend, for props for OTA. Okay, because you got to be pretty dorky to know that. Like, uh, or, I'm you know, dorky I, I, or have a great memory. You know, I got my nerd on here. I was like an, <laughs> an Al Gore acolyte in the uh, early 90s. Um, uh, back in the days of the Atari Democrats. So my question is back to Trump, right? So Trump's out there doing this, right? He's going to counter-program these hearings, and he's going to be out there spreading that message. Some version of that speech, which he's been giving different versions of it in various places. It's a various effect. Whatever you think about how Trump's performing in the primaries with his endorsements and stuff, do you think that when we see polling that suggests, you know, tens of millions of Republicans believe that the 2020 election was stolen. There are some people who say, well, they don't really believe that. They just say that because they want to stick it to the media. They lie to the pollsters. That's what Trump wants them to say. So they say it, but they don't really believe it. Is it your sense that really Trump has built an army with this messaging, an army, tens of millions, the majority maybe of the Republican Party that votes who think he was the rightful winner in 2020? He should be restored at the latest in 2024, and and some of them want him to be restored earlier and believe that he could be restored earlier. Of course, there's no constitutional mechanism for that. But is that like your view that he has effectively transformed your party into a majority party of conspiracy believing zombies? That's really what you're saying. (laughs) If that's, I mean, minds like if if tens of millions of Republicans actually believe the election was stolen against all 
all empirical evidence, Denver, all empirical evidence. Like, what else can you call those people if they believe the election was stolen? Either they really don't believe it, or if they really believe it, they're they're fucking zombies. Most believe it. And that's the um, that's been awful for me, losing so many friends and family members to what I would define as a cult. And some of the things that they said has really been disturbing to me. I think it's created some hysterical facts challenged individuals. How about that, John? And I think a lot of that has to do with they turned this apocalyptic. They turned it messianic. When you hear Trump talking like that in Casper, Wyoming, that is not a negative. And I've been trying to tell people, like, that's just not a negative. I know so many people who respond to that in such a positive way. What, what I love what you're doing, John, is I'm not going middle of the road. I'm not saying that some of these people don't believe or they do believe, but I think there's three segments, right? I think the first segment is you have those individuals that are tribal that are making money off this, the grifter class that are really pushing this. The second segment are those that you talked about, which are smaller, that just don't want to leave the tribe. They're sort of like, eh. You know, probably not all that's true, but maybe some of it's true. And it's not crazy enough yet for me to leave the tribe because absolutely the Democrats are globalists. And I would rather pick crazy over incompetence, right? And I've heard that so many times from other Republicans. And then there's the third part, which is the largest part of the Republican base are those who believe this is a battle between good and evil. They've actually been sucked in in that unicast environment you talked about where they could self-select. All that stuff is happening. So yes, my brother, what I'm telling you, John is that they have built a very effective information platform that has transformed a lot of the Republican Party into sort of a Trump army of people who believe this nonsense. And that's just as blunt as I can be about it. I want to finish up just with staying on Trump on this one question. So back to the hearings. Trump's going to be center stage. There's going to be other characters. We've talked about Pence as a big character. We've talked about Meadows as a big character. There'll be various characters as part of the story if the story is told well by the committee. Trump's the center of all of it. He's a, a black hole, right? He absorbs all the, like the energy of all the stars around him. He sucks yes. all the media energy. It creates a wormhole into another dimension, right? Whatever that world is, Trumplandia. And he's going to be at the center of our lives again for this period because we're going to be talking about Trump. Do you think that at the end of this, that when the story is told fully, knowing what the committee has, its strongest evidence, if it tells the story well or within the realm of as well as it could in your judgment, that... It's going to move the needle on how the country sees Donald Trump. Or are we just going to look up at the end of June and be right back where we were before, which is a bunch of people who think Trump is the worst thing ever and that he was totally obviously involved in this, that he should be put in jail, and a bunch of people who think he's got the election stolen from him. And a bunch of the people in the middle are like, I got to worry about gas prices, man. Fuck this. I don't care about Donald Trump. He's yesterday's news. There's tens of millions of people like that, too. Will this move the needle, do you think? I don't know. I'll say the objective. I'm going to give you my honest opinion because I think that's what you want here. So number one. I think we have to move two to three, three to five percent, anywhere between two and five percent of the American public towards the fact that this was a very, very bad thing. That's as blunt as I could get. Is it going to move the needle? I don't think enough not for Trump to run. I think if we move a half million people out of the 350 million United States or a million people, I think that's a big deal. It is about the margins in each district and how we approach this, that this was a bunch of grifters. These were a bunch of individuals trying to take advantage of people. This was fraud. There were money issues. They were trying to obstruct Congress. There was pressure on Mike Pence. All that stuff has to be in a narrative where enough people, enough people who haven't been paying attention say, holy crap. We can't allow this to happen. Those small margins are what's going to matter. A majority well, of the American people, absolutely not. Right. Just, just that's not that's not going to happen. I'm trying to get specifically to the Trump of it because you know one of the things you said. I just want to look at one of these things you said on CNN last week, where you said that one of the key elements was at the end of the day, what do people think about Trump's culpability? You know, was he a willing participant? Yes. Was he half yeah, so aware was... and kind of in or out, or was he like commanding control, right? Again, I'm not asking you to front run the committee and reveal any piece of evidence that hasn't been revealed yet. I'm asking you, as someone who has seen it all, are you convinced that it's clear that Trump was in the command and control position, number one? And number two, do you think the committee has it within its capacity, its wherewithal to convince a meaningful number of people, even the numbers you're talking about, which isn't the majority of the country or moving tens of millions of people, but a politically meaningful number of people of that fact that Trump was in, Ooh. that Trump ran this fucking thing. I, so there's something in military, you talked about command and control. Here's the thing we need to prove. I'm going to answer your question. I think it's already been proven Here's another term we can use, that there was commander's intent. I think if you have a centralized planning, decentralized control, or you have just a bunch of individual, what I call little Stalins, that are executing a mission outside of the commander, outside of the person who said, this is what I want to happen, 
the hardest thing to prove is command and control for President Trump. That is going to be very difficult. What I don't think is hard to prove is that he had that intent or he had an intent to do that. And that's why when I talk about, I don't know if this is going to go criminal. I'm not sure of that. I, it might not. But what I think is for people who pay attention, here's my hope for the committee, for people who pay attention, they should be able to see like, hey, maybe this individual wasn't pulling all the strings at every level because it's impossible. Maybe he doesn't have the capacity. Maybe he does and didn't, whatever, is that he wanted it to happen. And I think that's the thing the American people need to look at. Was that his intent? Was that the commander's intent of the people underneath of him? Did they go rogue? I would think that'd be ridiculous to even assume that based on the meetings he had with individuals in the White House. All that stuff's coming out, John. So can we at least prove, my friend, that he had commander's intent? And that's the thing that I'm looking for in these hearings and hope that we can get to. And then the way to translate that into human speak or non-military, <laughs> no, no, I mean, non-military speak would be, no, it's, I'm actually, I'm actually not meaning to be obnoxious. I just mean like commander's intent is understandable, I think, by most people. But here's how I'd put it. Attempted murder is still a crime, pretty serious crime. Attempted murder, you go to jail for a long time if you're convicted of attempted murder. That's kind of what we're talking about here is, you know, he didn't pull it off, but was he trying to pull it off? You have to have intent to do a You've got to have intent. Event. Right. That's right. That's right. right. If that was the intent, that's my hope that the committee can get to with the evidence that they have. Can you prove that there was intent for him to do that? You know, the criminal statute matters if it's, it's awful enough to where he can never run again because he's a felon or things of that nature. But that isn't probably going to happen. Yeah. It's going to be up to the voters to determine what they believe and what they don't believe. And I'm not trying to be pessimistic, John. I, I'm just saying that it's it's how do we get facts out into this social media world and to this yeah. new place we're in? And I'm still trying to figure that out. And as I'm watching this convoluted shit show of what happened well before November 3rd, I mean, come on, let's, it, it started before November 3rd. I mean, Trump was talking about the election was rigged well before November 3rd. When we look at it and how that was actually the fundraising happened and the targeting on social media and all that, that's what we need to get to. Can we convince voters that this is improper and we cannot have these type of people in charge of the government. I think that's the bigger issue because I don't think the criminal stuff is going to move the needle like people think it will. Denver Riggleman, thank you for being with us on Hell and High Water. That is the end of part one of this special episode. We're going to take a little break, a uh, 24-hour break, in fact, and come back and bring you part two of the special two-part episode of Hell and High Water, previewing the 1-6 committee hearings that are set to open up on Thursday night in prime time, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern. We're going to come back tomorrow for part two of the podcast and talk with Denver Riggleman about some broader topics, including his brief but eventful political career, his run-ins with and denunciations of QAnon, the role of conspiracy theorizing and far-right radicalism in today's GOP, and the strange and confounding part that Bigfoot has played in Riggleman's life. So be sure to come back tomorrow and check out part two of Denver Riggleman, one-sixth episode of Hell and High Water.